Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, we take a look at more commentary on the Walmart case, including the waiver attorney-client privilege issue that came up. Clara Hudson takes a look at how and why the Walmart monitorship issue was decided. We take a look at subcultures and how they can poison your organization. Um, What about the... Technique FMC Deferred Prosecution Agreement and some key takeaways. The Serious Fraud Office agrees to a DPA with Serco. France is actually moving towards more uh, DPA, DPAs. The CFTC awards two whistleblowers, uh, $1 million each for a total of $2 million award. Jonathan Mark explains why skepticism is a key component for any forensic and internal auditor and why too good to be true continues to be a true maxim. Take a look at the first city compliance officer to be nominated to the federal bench and under the new California Privacy Act, data protection may be a bigger risk as data privacy. It's a fascinating week of compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 161 for the week ending July 6, 2019, the happy July 4th weekend edition. So, Jay, as you know, I am back from uh, sunny Paris, and uh, it was an interesting week in Ethics and compliance. You want to jump into it? Sure. Uh, continuing his strong role now that he's on at the Wall Street Journal, we've got an article from our good colleague Dylan Tokar talking about privilege dispute and the Walmart probe raises stakes for corporate cooperation and a legal dispute that arose during the seven-year recently concluded uh, FCPA investigation to Walmart may have a lasting impact on how companies handle future investigations. The dispute led to a ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia last year that could make it harder for companies to cooperate with the government while also maintaining legal privilege over internal documents. The case centered on the types of agreements companies strike with prosecutors when they decide to cooperate, including making employees available for interviews and sharing documents. Uh, Basically, Walmart took a cooperative stance with the Justice Department during the probe, including allowing prosecutors to interview 18 current and former employees. In exchange, prosecutors agreed that any information disclosed by the employees would be covered by legal privilege and remain so. This is the potential sticking point. Um, In exchange, uh, prosecutors, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
when the Justice Department tried to subpoena one of the former general counsels of a Walmart subsidiary, the company boxed saying the subpoena sought privileged information. Since then, the Justice Department has been more reluctant to make non-waiver agreements. According to Joan Meyer, a former government prosecutor and now a white-collar defense attorney, she said, the government has pulled back from entering into these agreements is a consequence. That makes it harder for companies to cooperate with the government and protect legal privilege over documents. So we'll, uh, we'll have to see how this plays out, but it just um, more and more of this information that's coming out of Walmart uh, seems to be uh, very strange and making this a, a very unusual agreement. Um, that being said, we pick up another story from Clara Hudson over at Global Investigation Review, and she takes a look at the troubled settlement negotiations which led to the monitorship. And uh, many in the FCPA bar have questioned why Walmart was given a monitor when the deal was at odds with DOJ policy. Uh, in Clara's article, which we link to in the show notes, she basically speculates that this agreement uh, to have the monitor was uh, negotiated several years ago before Benskowski and the current DOJ um, leadership uh, became in place. And basically what happened was uh, they were talking about that at the same time Walmart was under investigation, they had an EPA monitor. And part of the reason why this may have worked out is the EPA took such a long time and was dragging its heel that Walmart was not able to take advantage of the uh, Benskowski memo and the new um, position from the DOJ uh, regarding whether or not a monitorship. So uh, I think people will still be talking about this for a while and trying to figure out the tea leaves. Uh, what is your takeaways, Tom? So um, it really speaks, Jay, to one issue that you and I have struggled with for many years, which is <clears throat> if you can only look at the publicly available record, and that is in the form of the deferred prosecution agreement or settlement agreement, non-prosecution agreement, whatever it may be. And one thing I've certainly learned is it's it's only not even the tip of the iceberg, but sometimes the pinprick of the iceberg. So uh, without this report, I don't think there was any way that uh, you or I or the rest of uh, the compliance community would have known about this other EPA aspect Uh the Department of Justice has been severely criticized um, for uh, the length of time it took to resolve the Walmart FCPA case. And it turns out, you know, that may have been multiple years because of the EPA. Um, and uh, we we, just, we still don't know the answer to that question. Nevertheless, it does ring, raise certain uh, aspects of justice. Delayed is justice denied. It was justice delayed for those who were uh, – uh, uh, hurt by Walmart's uh, corrupt actions, but Walmart was also hurt because you correctly pointed out that they could not take advantage of the Benkowski memo um, when um, uh, they may have been able to because of this uh, sort of pre-existing condition. So um, I thought it was uh, really insightful. Uh, I'm not sure it goes a long way towards explaining the machinations of how we got from from A in a tortured journey to Z. Nevertheless, it's it's more information in I guess it just drove home to me uh, uh, one, once upon a time a former DOJ, or, uh, and I think it, he meant it as a compliment, but I certainly took it as a compliment. He told me that I was the best at interpreting the public record of anyone he knew. 
And when he said public record, he was clearly communicating to me that, you know, Tom, you don't know diddly about what the real story is. So, um, you know, we're, but that's what we're stuck with. So uh, next up, uh, we're going to w- take our weekly turn with the coolest guy in compliance. What has Matt Kelly steamed up about the CBP and subcultures? So, Jay, this re- uh, relates to the concentration camps on the uh, the border now uh, between Texas and Mexico, where the Trump administration is uh, separating families and putting people uh, in these camps, uh, sort of all the negative information that's come out about the treatment they're receiving. Uh, and then, lo and behold, it turns out there's uh, a subgroup or a, a group, rather, at the Customs and Border Protection that had a, a Facebook group replete, replete with racist, sexist posts about migrants and Democratic politicians. Uh, at one point, they showed um, uh, there was a picture of uh, the Congresswoman uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, allegedly performing a sex act on Donald Trump as he forced himself upon her. So um, uh, anyway, uh, you get the idea of how how uh, just uh, distasteful these posts were. But Matt uses it to talk about the, the difference in culture versus subculture. And he points out that employees will develop their own subcultures. Um, and occasionally they're, they're provide, uh, you know, chronic illness and chronic corruption to the entire organization. And I th- certainly think that this is a situation here where you've got uh, clearly a group within the uh, Customs and Border Protection who has uh, delegitimized the basic humanity of those trying to cross the borders into the United States, uh, basically call the the, t- the husband, excuse me, the father and daughter, who uh, father and son who drowned as floaters in the Rio Grande. And uh, uh, you've got to kind of monitor this within your organization, because if you do have this, it can literally um, infect your entire organization. And it's going to be, uh, of course, incumbent on the Customs and Border Patrol to uh, actually do something about this. Yeah, really disturbing. Um, next up, you decided to um, shine your spotlight with a three-part series on the recent uh, technique FMC deferred prosecution. After uh, diving in for three episodes, uh, what are the takeaways that you have, Tom? So just a, a couple, Jay, because I think this has been fairly well explored, but uh, re- regarding the bribery schemes themselves, uh, with Technip, they were bribing um, or paying bribes in Brazil, uh, or rather for Petrobras uh, contracts. And uh, in many, many uh, most of the situations, Petrobras was in on the bribery scheme, and so they would either, o- either overcharge or undercharge and then divert monies to um, Swiss Bank or other uh, money laundering jurisdictions uh, to pay the corrupt officials. So it, it drives home the situation that compliance pro- professionals are, are being forced to face, which is what happens when your customer is corrupt? Um, and that's just typically not something that compliance programs are dealt or designed to deal with. You're designed to deal with corrupt third parties, not corrupt customers. And so the techniques utilized by banks in basic know-your-customer uh, analysis, I think, is going to become more important. Um, also, the the use of joint ventures here, Keppel Offshore uh, created a joint venture with Technip with a specific purpose to pay bribes. Uh, is your joint venture uh, valid? Is its business uh, justifications and the business that it does any, any way um, 
present any business uh, rationale for going forward. And in this case, it didn't. And then from over on the FMC side, Technip and FMC merged in January 2017. So that's why it's Technip FMC. But we had the anomaly of both com- companies uh, had uh, FCPA investigation going on before they merged. FMC was paying bribes in uh, Iran, excuse me, Iraq, uh, to get contracts with the Iraqi uh, energy company. And uh, in reading, it was, uh, I don't want to say standard, but but fairly routine bribery schemes involved, uh, cash, uh, much lesser amounts that were paid in, in Brazil. But the thing that struck me, Jay, was the continued request for money. So Technip would pay one level of bribes, and inevitably there would be some other reason pop up why a bribe had to be paid. A new person was reviewing the file, and he needed to be paid. Or a new issue had come up, and there needed to be an additional payment. These payments were not large. I mean, they could have been as low as 5000 or up to 50000 But uh, once you subject yourself, once you show that you're willing to engage in bribery and corruption, uh, you're now criminalized and uh, uh now we're just negotiating over the price. And uh, Technip had to continually go back to the well to pay more bribes. And it, it just shows once you start paying bribes, you're going to be subject to being extorted for more bribes literally all the way through and even after the contract is signed. So yet another reason not to engage in bribery and corruption, this time from the business perspective. Uh, the SFO actually um – agrees to a deferred prosecution agreement subject to court approval with a company called um, Circo Graphics Limited. Uh, we're, quote to, we're linked to two sources in the show notes. One is a very comprehensive look at this by James Thomas from Global Investigations Review. And then we also link to the uh, press release from the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, basically, Geographics, uh, Circo Geographics Limited has agreed to a preliminary 19.2 million pound settlement with the SFO to resolve allegations that are participated in a scheme to mislead the Ministry of Justice. The SFO confirmed that it has agreed to this three-year prosecution. The DPA was initially approved by Mr. Justice William Davis at Southwark Crown Court in London. The SFO said it will ask Davis for final approval on the 4th of July. If the judge approves, SGL will pay a fine and an additional 3.7 million pounds to cover SFO legal costs. Um, Circo said the amount was halved due to the company's full cooperation and the fact that it had self-reported. The company reported the misconduct in November 2013, a month after the SFL launched its investigation. In a statement, the SFO said it had agreed to the DPA in principle because of the company's prompt and voluntary disclosure, its substantial cooperation, and significant remedial efforts. Um, If agreed, this DPA will be the fifth that the SFO has secured since agreements became available in the U.K., the other four agreements uh, include um, those signed with retailer Tesco, engineering company Rolls-Royce, anonymous company XYZ, and Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, lawyers have previously told Global Investigations Review that the DPA system has several flaws that need to be ironed out. The SFO has been under fire since individuals under investigation in the Tesco matter were acquitted. 
Uh, and we have a quote from Jessica Parker at Corker Benning in London. And she said, the announcement is a significant milestone for SFO head Lisa Zofsky because despite the SFO's early successes, the rationale for agreements has been seriously weakened, uh, weakened by recent cases. Tom, your thoughts? So, yeah, I guess, Jay, uh, what struck me about the article was not so much the uh, DPA, which was uh, agreed to and reported, but just the withering criticism of the SFO. Uh, they've taken it on the chin. This this dropping of the Rolls-Royce cases in the face of uh, Rolls-Royce actually agreeing to a DPA is, is almost unexcusable. Uh, of course, the Tesco case, you had the individuals acquitted where the company had agreed to a, a DPA. And you frankly have to wonder why uh, any company would agree to a DPA other than that they're just getting out of something at a relatively low cost. Uh, so whether the SFO can follow this up with anything significant is, uh, in my mind, still an open question. Agreed. Uh, next up, we've got our second Dylan Tokar article of the morning. Uh, this comes to us from the Risk and Compliance Journal and the Wall Street Journal. France moves towards U.S. model by endorsing corporate-led investigations. French authorities are encouraging companies to conduct internal investigations when seeking to settle allegations of certain financial crime. This latest in the series of reforms that brings brings France closer to the U.S. model of corporate crime and punishment. Uh, Recent guidance explaining how such investigations can help companies secure negotiated settlements was released last week by France's financial prosecutors and a new uh, anti-corruption agency. Without a way to strike out-of-court deals with corporations, French prosecutors have traditionally brought them to trial. It's a real. It's been a real fight at the death at every turn," said Kevin Abacoff, a white-collar defense attorney at Hughes Hubbard and Reed. French authorities now say cor- corporations that discover potential violations should cooperate by conducting internal investigations and sharing results with investigators. Uh, in 2016, France adopted the anti-corruption law known as Sapin Deux. That required, that required French companies of subsidiaries of certain sizes to maintain compliance programs. And this created a new anti-corruption agency in France, the Agence Française Anti-Corruption, the AFA. So um, basically we've seen within the last year that there's been further cooperation between French prosecutors in the U.S. This is specifically underlined by the Société Générale um, Settlement. And then the new guidance lays out in detail what France's financial crimes investigator, Parquet National Financier, and the AFA call a CJIP. So that's basically um, equivalent to the uh, deferred prosecution agreement. And what we're going to need to see now is if they actually build in uh, a mechanism to either have uh, not only the DPAs, but whether or not there's going to be um, – you know, the concept of a monitor there in France. U.S. prosecutors sometimes require companies to hire monitors to oversee compliance with the settlement. And in a show of confidence, the Justice Department in 2018 said ongoing monitoring was not required by SOCGEN under their uh, agreement. So there now appears to be a brotherhood of regulators who are using shared methods and harmonizing the investigative capabilities 
So uh, one can only hope that these are continuing steps forward for France to join with the other uh, major industrialized companies who have robust anti-corruption um, stances. So next up, uh, Tom's going to take a look at the Commodities Future Trading Commission and their recent award of $2 million to two whistleblowers. So yes, Jay, the CTFT, excuse me, CFTC, Commodities Future Trading Commission, awarded two whistleblowers a combined amount of $2 million for providing the agency with significant information that led to the investigation. The award is going to be split evenly because they jointly submitted the tip and the award application. The CFTC called them model whistleblowers because they identified key relationships and explained complex financial uh, arrangements. Uh, they were highly informative and the same informa- they also provided the same information to another organization uh, within the U.S. government, which conducted a separate investigation and shared its findings with the CFTC. The CFTC's Christopher Ehrman said it often takes integrity and courage to report specific, timely, and credible information about misconduct, and such information enhances our ability to police the markets. So um, by law, the CFTC protects the confidentiality of investigators, so we don't know uh, the information they disclosed, which might uh, lead to their being unmasked. So um, an interesting report, uh, and it came to us from Harry Casson over at the FCPA blog. So uh, next up, something from one of our colleagues who we haven't had too much as of late. Um, Jonathan Marks uh, joins us with a look into Theranos, whether or not it was too good to be true. And um, I'm sure the facts to this matter are generally known by most people, but I'll give a little quick update that um, Elizabeth Holmes founded Theranos in 2003 at 19 years old after she had dropped out of Stanford University. She marketed a medical laboratory on a chip by promoting a product that could run hundreds of quick and inexpensive diagnostic blood tests. She recruited a board that included Henry Kissinger and George Schultz, former U.S. Secretary of State, and also Larry Ellison, one of her professors at Stanford, venture capitalist from Draper Fisher Jurvetson, and now Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, and just for good measure, Rupert Murdoch was also on the board. In 2013, Walgreens partnered with Theranos in 2013 without ever allegedly testing the technology. At the time, Theranos Wellness Centers popped up in 40 Walgreens stores in Arizona. And Walgreens is now a case study of what can happen when an established company that craves growth decides to gamble on an exciting and unproven concern. Uh, Things kind of moved along uh, to 2015. The company was valued at $9 billion. And then a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, John Carew, began investigating the company and covered a number of red flags and suspicious claims. These discoveries led to additional investigation by the Security and Exchange Commission and the United States Attorney's Office. Uh, It was uh, alleged now that the company had the following schemes to defraud investigators. Uh, Holmes and her co-conspirator, Balwani, made material false misleading statements to investors and failed to disclose material facts. They deceived investors through misleading technology demonstrations. They misrepresented their relationship with Walmart and misrepresented examination and validation processes. 
Jonathan goes on to take a look at uh, uh, Fraud Pentagon and says that basically arrogance, competence, opportunity, pressure, and rationalization led to what was what happened at the company. And uh, unfortunately, a company with such conditions uh, that could become the lead scandal in tomorrow news. So just like Theranos joins the uh, Hall of Shame, including Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, and HealthSpot, uh, there are basically certain bl- blind spots that a company needs to look at in terms of uh, avoiding a situation like this. So it's, uh, it's a great article by Jonathan, and we link to it in the show notes. Um, I know we've talked a lot about Theranos in the past. Tom, anything else you'd like to uh, add here? It really demonstrates, Jay, that uh, you have to uh, have skepticism on any business transaction. And there were people at Walgreens who were skeptical of this. And they did want to look behind the curtain, and they uh, uh, they were f- simply removed from the uh, investment team. And uh, when you do things like that, that's when uh, companies tend to get in trouble. Walgreen claims that they were defrauded, and they were defrauded, but a large part of Walgreen's uh, problem really uh, stems exactly from uh, not doing basic business due diligence on uh, something. So we can't get enough Walmart in the news. Uh, Richard Casson comes to us with uh, something else from his blog, and Walmart compliance honcho nominated for the federal bench. What's the story? So Jay Lee Rudofsky uh, is the, or I guess he still is, the Senior Director for Global Anti-Corruption Compliance at Walmart, and he's the first sitting compliance officer to be nominated by uh for the federal bench. So all of us in the compliance community need to uh, celebrate this. This is, uh, I think, a very significant uh, development. Uh, he clearly is a lawyer, uh, and he practiced at Kirkland and & Ellis and a couple of other firms. He's also a uh, former uh Supreme Court clerk at the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and uh, a U.S. Court of Appeals clerk. So uh, he's obviously a pretty smart guy, uh, done, I think, pretty good stuff at Walmart, very well respected, uh, politically savvy, having worked in Mitt Romney's um, political campaign. But from the compliance perspective, it's great to see a sitting compliance officer nominated uh, to the federal bench. Great. And our last uh, article right now um got a group of contributors um, from the law firm of Davis Polk and Wardell, and uh, their article is entitled, The Biggest Risk with CCPA May Be Cybersecurity, Not Privacy, 10 Things Companies Are Doing to Prepare. Right, Jay. And I thought this was really interesting because uh, most compliance professionals and practitioners are aware of the California Consumer Privacy Act, certainly data privacy data protection officers in the United States are. And most of the focus has been on um, data privacy. But this article points out that cybersecurity is equally important because it creates a private right uh, of action for California consumers against companies that have experienced a cyber breach if their personal information is taken by an unauthorized um, person. It's uh, the law provides for statutory damages between $100 and $750, and the only viable defense to an action is that a company uh, upheld its duty to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures and practices appropriate to the nature of the information uh, to protect uh, personal information. And the article lays out 10 uh, items that uh, they believe companies should engage in. These are things that Jonathan 
Armstrong and I have talked about in our life with uh, uh, GDPR podcast, but it really drove home the point that the uh, California law is, as GDPR is, twofold, data privacy and data protection. And then if you don't have the data protection component as robust as you do the data privacy component, you could open yourself up to uh, some significant breaches and just think of – you know, the number of consumers at 100 or $750, it wouldn't take much uh, to add up to a pretty significant pot. And if you've got a million or so, um, you know, that's a, 750 times uh, a million is a big number and uh, it could be very costly going forward. So take a look at your data protection uh, as well. So, Tom, you started a, a series a little bit earlier this year called Trekking through compliance, uh, what are some of the topics that you've discussed recently? So trekking through compliance, I think everyone who's ever listened to any of my podcasts, Jay, knows that I'm a full-flown Trekkie um, from the original series, uh, which is the one I grew up with. So this summer, uh, to honor uh, Star Trek, the original series, and the summer, uh, because uh, it's uh, 79 episodes, I'm doing uh, each episode on a daily basis. So you get the, uh, the story, the story synopsis, a fun fact of trivia, and then some compliance and leadership takeaways. So uh, this week, I wanted to highlight and call out, Monday I had Who Mourns for Adonais, to the ch- uh, Tuesday, The Changeling, Wednesday, Mirror, Mirror, uh, Thursday, The Apple, and then uh, yesterday, Friday, uh, The Doomsday Machine, one of my personal favorite episodes. And uh, so if you want to, if you're a lover of Trek and you'd like to uh, learn some lessons that you might be able to impart, import into your compliance function and impart to your employees, check out Trekking Through Compliance. It's the uh, summer series podcast for you. So uh, I know you just got back from Paris. Can you tell us uh, what conference you were attending and uh, any takeaways that might be particularly interesting to our listeners? Sure. I was at uh, uh, Le Cercle de la Compliance Conference in Paris, which is a group of compliance professionals literally throughout France. It was um, a two-day conference. The uh, first day focused on the compliance profession and the compliance professional. The second day focused on compliance programs, and that was uh, the day I spoke. I spoke on operationalizing compliance. But really uh, a great thirst for uh, compliance professionals in uh, France as um, as you mentioned, with Sepondu uh, being enacted two years ago, this organization was formed five years ago. So it's relatively new. Uh, the the thirst for increased knowledge and compliance programs is very great among the um, compliance practitioners in France, much like uh, it is still in Brazil. So I look forward to, to working with their group. Uh, they were a great group of folks. Um, I think we had a uh, couple of hundred people in attendance, so uh, very well attended. Uh, we were... Uh, Fed it as only the Parisians can do so. So uh, a lot on data privacy, data protection, investigations. Recorded some podcasts while I was over there that will be posted uh, in the near future. Uh, So uh, I I really thought it was a a great opportunity to collaborate with uh, professionals uh, in France, compliance professionals in France. And frankly, I learned some ideas that I'm going to blog about probably on Monday that uh, I thought American compliance practitioners need to – Need to think about as well. Excellent. And then in the coming week, are there any webinars we need to let people know about? Um, so Jay and I are going to be doing a webinar for 
uh, and with Conversant. And we're going to take a look at the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance as it conjoins with the Benchkowski memo. I know uh, Jay and his affiliated monitor colleagues have really talked about uh, the Benchkowski memo as not really a precedent or uh, a precedent even to the uh, 2019 guidance, but really part one. And so we take a look at what Jay and I, and I think many others have come to see, is really a two-part process with the Benchkowski memo being uh Part of the memo is the Department of Justice's own internal calculus about what to uh, when a monitor is appropriate. But also, there's quite a bit of information in there about a company when they're under investigation, what they uh, need uh, to do to avoid a monitorship. And um, obviously, the guidance is uh, a best practices analysis and where the Department of Justice currently's thinking is around compliance programs. So it may even be the guidance should be part one. Part two should be the Benchkowski memo. What do you do to remediate when you're in an investigation? And then part three uh, might be the, uh, the Department of Justice's guidelines around uh, when it makes a decision to have a monitorship. So it's an interesting way to look at this. Uh, uh, I know, Jay, I think it's going to be uh, not only a lot of fun, but incredibly useful for the compliance practitioner to, to see this uh, continuum of thought from the Department of Justice. So we're looking forward to that uh, uh, later on uh, next week. And another thing, uh, even though it might be the dog days of compliance summer, I uh, wanted to announce an event that we're going to have in the Houston area that uh, my colleagues, Vin DeSiani and Eric Feldman, will be joining Tom for a Houston roundtable. And again, uh, as we just discussed, they'll be taking a look at the updated DOJ evaluations of corporate compliance program to 2019 and talk about what's new. Um, we'll link to this in the show notes, but the event is going to take place on July 22nd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at the Good Company Seafood in Houston. Um, so please uh, RSVP to J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. And uh, Tom and Eric and Vin would be happy to see you in Houston and talk compliance and anything else that's on your mind. Uh, Tom, there's been a slew of NBA signings and uh, reassignments. Uh, any, anything uh, on the uh, horizon for the Houston Astros? They don't seem to re- uh, Astros. I'm sorry, the Rockets. I don't seem to see their uh, name is acquiring any new guns. So Jay, sometimes the best deals you make are the deals you don't make. And I didn't think that the Rockets were broken to start with. Um, and I still don't think they're broken. So uh, I think the Rockets standing pat may have been uh, the best move for them. So I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, it's uh, It's been a huge shakeup. That's uh, definitely certain. And uh, as, as, as recent as yesterday, the shakeup continued with Kawhi Leonard announced, announcing he was signing with the Clippers and uh, Paul George being traded uh, to the Clippers, given the Clippers, I think, instant credibility uh, in a revamped, uh, Western Division, so it's going to be a fascinating season. If the Rockets can stay healthy, I think they are uh, in the mix as well as anyone to compete for uh, the championship next year. So uh, some of the pundits are saying, besides the uh, 
earthquakes and aftershocks here in Southern California, and we hope everyone is safe with that, that the, uh, the two other seismic shifts have been those two deals, just talking about Kawhi, um, Kawhi Leonard and uh, Paige. So uh, L.A. looks like it's going to have a pretty robust uh, NBA season next year between the uh, Clippers and the Lakers. So it'll be nice to see those two franchises being relevant again. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 161 for the week ending July 6th, the happy 4th of July weekend edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode, and I hope Jay, you will join Jay and I again for another wrap-up of some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.